Hey Vancouver, how are you? I'm Mike Howell and welcome to another episode of 12th and Canby, the podcast. My guest in studio today is Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer. Listen in as he discusses many topical policing issues, including the London terror attack, the overdose crisis, the shooting of Tony Dew, and the department's recruiting drive to hire more women. So let's get to it. Here we go. Good afternoon, Chief. Thanks for coming in today. My pleasure. Wanted to get uh, right to the news of the day, a terror attack in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people hear that news, it often seems so far away from here, and that could never happen here. I'm just wondering how much of the VPD's work goes into ensuring something like that doesn't happen here in the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a it's a tragic incident that happened today in London, and it's something that uh, we are dialed in with, and we're following the developments very closely. We do have officers that are specially trained in counterterrorism issues and national security issues. So they're connected to a network through VPD and through the RCMP and through our partners internationally, where we follow um, terrorist events like that. And we always look for any nexus to Vancouver. We've got officers that are not only um, specially trained in those types of issues um, as a detective role, but also frontline officers that have specialized training in that as well. So they know what to recognize when they're out on the street. I know uh, many years ago when Jamie Graham was chief, I remember him saying something to a reporter to the effect that if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Hmm. How do you sleep at night? I sleep very soundly. Yeah. Uh, actually, I get asked that question uh, fairly regularly. Uh, it's probably just a personal thing, but I've never had a problem sleeping. I, I sleep quite soundly. Sometimes hmm. I may not get enough sleep and that I'm going to bed late and getting up early, but uh, when I do hit the uh, hit the bed, I fall asleep very quickly. Well, I guess what he was referring to there is that he, obviously, as a chief of police, you know a lot about the, the bad guys and, mm-hmm. and what goes on uh, in the city that people don't often see. But mm-hmm. uh, I've heard you and the mayor and others say over the years that Vancouver is a very safe city. In the last two or three months, there's been a lot of shootings, mm-hmm. homicides, stabbings. What do you attribute that to? You know, sometimes it's cyclical, Um, being with the department now for 29 years. So I've seen the waves kind of go up and down. And in my own personal experience, I was a member of the gang unit for four years. So I do have a lot of uh, experience working in those areas. Right now, we are going through um, a couple of disputes in the lower mainland that we're monitoring. It does touch on Vancouver. Some of them are related to conflicts happening in places like Abbotsford and Surrey that have uh, a nexus to Vancouver. And then we have another conflict that's uh, more localized in the downtown east side. But in both of those cases, we do have officers assigned to take proactive action as well as uh, investigative action to investigate the events that have happened. I wouldn't say that we're in any kind of a, um, you know, gang war or anything like that. I don't Mm -hmm. think we're um, anything close to that in Vancouver. Um, However, anytime somebody fires a gun or somebody's murdered, it's an extremely serious thing. And we do put significant resources into it. So we're, we're monitoring the developments and staying on top of these issues. How much of it is connected to the, the drug trade uh, in the city? Almost all of it. All of Almost it. everything that you can relate to in gangs has got some nexus to drugs. I mean, there are exceptions where gangs will be involved in other things like, um, you know, extortions and money laundering, um, credit cards, trafficking weapons, things like that. But even those types of offenses, they do have a nexus back to drugs. So uh, speaking of drugs, uh, the city just issued some more stats, I think yesterday, on um, the state of uh, 
the overdose crisis, things, uh, things aren't getting better. I know that the VPD has taken some criticism from people saying that the VPD is not doing enough. You're not going after these people selling fentanyl. So what do you, what do you say to listeners out there uh, when they hear that? Well, I would say that if people are saying that, that they're just misinformed because the VPD is actually doing a lot on the enforcement side. So the four pillars that I think everybody's aware of, of prevention, enforcement, harm reduction, and treatment, uh, the one pillar that does fall square in our court is enforcement. And since Thanksgiving of 2014, so October 2014, almost all of our efforts exclusively on the drugs and organized crime front have had a focus on fentanyl-related issues. Mm-hmm. So we are putting significant resources into it. We've had six major projects that I can think of right now, um, some that have been high-profile in the courts, including a case recently where a fellow got 14 years. We also have other projects on fentanyl underway as we speak. So there's a lot of work going on internally at VPD and also in partnership with the RCMP. And in terms of overdoses, just clarify this as well. VPD does not respond to an overdose per se, but the VPD will respond to an overdose if someone dies and you have to investigate. Is that correct? That's correct. There's a little bit more to it. Uh, In 2006, we were the first police department in Canada to enact a policy whereby we don't routinely respond to overdose calls. The reason for that is that police response can be seen as a barrier to people reporting. Right. So we want people to call 911 and not be in fear that if there's drugs or paraphernalia lying around that they may end up being charged with something. So we'll respond normally in two cases. One, as you mentioned, if somebody dies or if the ambulance or the fire department requests any kind of backup because it's a dangerous situation, then we'll respond as well. So back in December, uh, you held a press conference with the mayor and fire chief McCurney and you issued uh, a unified plea for treatment on demand. Where has that gone? Has the government uh, listened uh, to you on that? I think that people are listening. I think that there's still more that needs to be done, but I think that we have made progress. I've noticed action from the provincial government and the federal government. Um, More money and resources have been put in both provincially and federally. Um, Definitely the the provincial task force that's dealing with the opioid crisis, VPD has a seat on that. Uh, One of my deputy chiefs, Lawrence Rankin, is a member of that committee sitting on it. It's a joint justice and health committee. Um, they are definitely listening to what the VPD is saying. And when we're talking about treatment, that's a very large umbrella. So treatment can include many different options. It can include um, an option where somebody goes right into recovery and then full treatment and gets completely off drugs. It can include uh, replacement or substitution therapy with drugs such as um, hydromorphone or um, suboxone, which is uh, an inhibitor, or um, even... um, Medical grade heroin is another option that's being explored in the downtown east side. So there's different um, avenues. The VPD has, has always said that we're not experts in healthcare. We're experts in public safety. But what we see on the public safety front is when people are dying on a regular basis in our city, that more needs to be done on the health front. And it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution for everybody. I think that what you need is a proper assessment so that when somebody comes in, you look at all of their circumstances and you make an educated decision as a physician or medical professional what route that person needs to get help. The, the problem we were seeing was that there was people coming forward for help and that help wasn't available, but I think we're starting to head in the right direction. So Prime Minister Trudeau was in town recently. Did you get a chance to meet with him? I've met with him twice recently. I yeah. met with him um, after the uh, Chinese New Year's parade, and I met with him again uh, about 10 days ago when he was in town. 
Uh, I was impressed that he was taking the time to come out and meet with VPD officers and listen to what VPD had to say. And he wanted to come out and go out in the downtown east side and see firsthand what our officers were experiencing. So I, I thought that he was listening and uh, trying to get a really good understanding of what the issues are. Now, I know uh, your predecessor, Jim Chu, he used to go, well, used to invite senior ministers from uh, Ottawa to come and visit Vancouver. And I remember him taking, uh, taking some of them on tours of the downtown east side. Are you mm-hmm. continuing that? I've met with uh, several ministers recently. I've met with uh, Bill Blair, Jody Wilson-Raybolt, uh, Harge Sajan. I've spoken with Ralph Goodell. Um, so, yeah, I'm in regular contact with uh, various ministers and people from the provincial and federal government. So are they listening to the message that you have or the concerns you have? I think that people are starting to take it seriously now. I think that before, one of the issues probably in the federal landscape was that it really was an a British Columbia issue for a long time. And then it started creeping into Alberta and now it's heading east into central Canada. And now that it is hitting Ontario, um, because the country just by nature tends to be more Ontario centric from a federal government perspective, um, they weren't paying as much attention to it perhaps a year ago, but now they definitely are. So I wanted to talk about another drug, marijuana. Mm -hmm. Um, I know it's springtime and uh, the federal government said that they will be introducing uh, some legislation to regulate and legalize marijuana. That hasn't happened yet, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I, I do remember uh, way back in um, October of 2013, I believe, that's back when you were a deputy chief, that this uh, topic of marijuana dispensaries came up at police board. And I know a question was asked of a board member, he might have asked it of you, of, well, how many of these pot shops do we have in the city? Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was 29. Mm-hmm. So I guess the public would want to know, like, why didn't the VPD take some action back then when there were 29? Mm-hmm. Marijuana has not been a priority for us. It continues not to be a priority. Mm-hmm. We do have um, a focus on things that have a nexus to significant public safety. So whether it's organized crime, if it's a, you know outfit that's dealing with uh, dealing drugs to youth, if it's fentanyl-related, which has been our focus since uh, 2014, those are areas that are of more concern to us. So marijuana, while it is an issue and there are concerns with marijuana, uh, we feel that always dealing with it from a police perspective and an arrest and charge perspective is not the most helpful way. Mm -hmm. And we're looking forward to seeing what the new legislation will be from the government. And the city in Vancouver has taken a unique approach that they've come up with a regulatory way to deal with those issues that has helped uh, stem the growth of those marijuana stores because we ended up with about a hundred probably two years ago and we're still at about a hundred now. So it did kind of stem the tide, but really what we're waiting for is the change in federal legislation to see how that's going to look. Yeah. I think my last count, the stats I looked at from last week, I think there's only nine uh, uh, pot shops in the city that have received business licenses. Um, and there's been 1300 tickets issued. Mm-hmm. Um, on that note, uh, last week or the week before, uh, Mark Emery and his wife, Jody were arrested in Toronto. Mm-hmm. I know that the VPD was involved in a, a raid or a search warrant at the cannabis culture, uh, business on Hastings. Um, so I, I'm not sure how much you can talk about that. Uh, but there are some people who say, well, has the VPD then shifted its policy on marijuana dispensaries? Because here they go again. Mm-hmm. Can you give us some uh, clarification on that? Sure. So that was a Toronto police file. Um, It had 
tentacles into other places in Ontario and to British Columbia, which is, of course, where the Emery's live here in Vancouver, or Jody does anyways. So we were assisting another agency. Toronto Police had a large file. They got a search warrant in Ontario for a location in Vancouver that was backed by a judge in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. So it was a lawful search warrant to search the premises on West Hastings Street and also their personal residence. So the VPD assisted them in executing their search warrants. There's been no change in our policy, how we deal with marijuana, but we do have a legal obligation to assist our partners in law enforcement when they have a lawful warrant. Right. So it's not a shift in policy? No. No. Okay. Um, I I wanted to talk to you about the the number of times that police have to respond to somebody with a mental illness in the city. I haven't seen the latest stats, but I know the apprehensions kind of go up and down, but I, I looked on your website. There's a freedom of information document um, that indicated that, sp- that spending on your mental health unit went from uh, 55 grand in 2012 to 1.1 million in 2016. So wh- why is that? Mm-hmm. We have put significant resources into the mental health issue because it's an issue that we deal with daily in the city. So we have um, thousands of apprehensions every year under the mental health act which gives police officers the authority to apprehend somebody if they're suffering from an apparent uh, mental health issue and they're a danger to themselves or others. And what we saw over the last 10 years is that those numbers of apprehensions kept going up year after year after year. And then finally in 2015, we saw it plateau. And then in 2016 is the first year that we saw the numbers come down slightly. And what we would attribute that to is a lot of the great partnerships that we have with Vancouver Coastal Health and work we've done with the city of Vancouver, Providence Healthcare, and a lot of the uh, um, health players in the region to have coordinated units. So through our assertive community treatment and our assertive outreach teams, we have combined units with police officers in plain clothes and mental health professionals. And we proactively go out into the community and we assist people that we know are suffering from mental health issues and we'll visit them at their home and just keep them on track before they decompensate to the point where they have to go to hospital or be visited by a police officer under a negative set of circumstances. By doing that, we've reduced police calls for service with that cohort, which is about 400 people by over 50% and hospital visits by over 60%. Hmm. So that proactive work is making a difference. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break so we can uh, hear from another one of our podcasters here at Glacier Media. So we'll be right back with more from Adam Palmer. We're not like the rest of the country. Separated from everything east of us by the Rocky Mountains, fronted to the west by ocean, and to the south by an international border, we have a history and a culture that's all our own. It's different here, and it's that difference that we explore on This Is Lotus Land, a podcast about people and their lives in BC's Lower Mainland. Whether it's the history of gangs in East Vancouver, taking the bus to the North Shore, or the time Fidel Castro landed in Richmond, it's about stories that aren't going to be told by Toronto or Montreal. You can find me, Barry Link, and this is Lotusland at pressplaynetwork.ca and on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. That's This Is Lotusland, telling unique stories about our part of the world, one difference at a time. Okay, we're back with uh, Chief Adam Palmer from the Vancouver Police Department. Uh, We were talking uh, just a few uh, seconds ago there about mental health. Now, 
I know that the Vancouver Police Union commissioned a survey way back in 2015 that showed that many officers were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. What's your assessment of those findings? Are those accurate? Uh, just so we're clear, that study was actually from 2014, but the results okay. were published in 2015. Okay. But yeah, I'm very familiar with it. Um, anytime that I hear about um, our officers with any sort of PTSD or mental health issues or, you know, concerns about their well-being. Um, yes, it, it definitely concerns me. It's something that um, is high on my radar and it's something that we're working very hard on to try and um, stem the tide of that. I would say that the results, I think the number was about 30% that was quoted. That is consistent. Um, there's not many studies been done in Canada, but in the United States, that is a consistent number that you will see. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that 30% of the police department is stressed out or has PTSD because it's right. a continuum. Okay. So it could be from the very low end of the scale to the very high end of the scale and officers could fall somewhere in there. So many of those officers may have um, you know, early symptoms of something that's going awry, but it's actually a very small number that would be at the high end of the scale. But nonetheless, uh, you know, we put our officers out there every day in very difficult circumstances, dangerous situations. And I think the research is pretty clear now that years ago, we always thought that it was one serious incident. So if an officer was involved in a shooting or a stabbing or, you know, fatal car accident or something like that, that may be very traumatizing or stressful to be involved in, that that could be a trigger point. But I think the research is quite clear now that it's actually a cumulative effect. So over many years of sending officers out to deal with dangerous situations, you know, molested children, women who've been sexually assaulted, people who have been victims of violent crime, seeing people who've been shot, perhaps being involved in violent altercations yourself, that can wear on an officer over over the years. And Mm -hmm. we're all wired differently. And, you know, you or I may be able to go to a thousand calls like that and we'll be fine. But you may have other people, they're just wired differently. And, um, you know, it's it weighs on people in different ways, depending on who you are, because we're all individual people. Mm-hmm. So we have done a lot of proactive work, but there's still more work that we can do. We have developed um, a road to mental readiness program in Vancouver. We have critical incident stress management for our officers. We have a very robust employee wellness program where, you know, officers can seek um, psychological counseling if they need it, if they need to talk to any kind of therapists. Um, a lot of stuff to do with physical activity and physical training and we have yoga in the police station. We have a um, fitness coordinator who also you know, can do massage therapy. Like we have a lot of different things available to help people out, but we're always looking for new ways. And I would say that the stuff that we've implemented, we are um, right at the, the edge of doing everything we need to do in Canada, the leading edge, but we're always looking for new ideas and looking for the next best thing to do to help out our officers because it is concerning. I wanted to talk a little bit more about that, but I know that there's a couple of cases that have been in the news um, this year about people who have died after incidents involving police. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Tony Dew and Miles Gray. You've heard the accusations that police acted inappropriately in these cases. So how do you respond to that? Well, we'll start with the uh, Tony Dew case because um, it's fine for people to come out and say that the police acted inappropriately. But the reality is that those officers were put into a very difficult set of circumstances that was life-threatening, um, very dangerous situation up at 41st and night in the middle of traffic with a person that was waving around uh, a two-by-four. And while it's tragic that somebody died and we feel terrible for the family, it's a terrible set of circumstances, those officers did everything that they had to do because they were faced with uh, death or grievous bodily harm. 
And we have to remember that we've gone through investigative processes with the Independent Investigations Office and also through Crown Counsel. So we have had the independent civilian oversight on those incidents, and it's come back that there's no fault on behalf of our officers. Mm-hmm. So I think when people, you know, sort of play armchair quarterback and throw out accusations, they're actually coming from a place where they don't have all the facts, and all of a sudden they they think that they know best, but really they don't uh, they don't have the expertise or all the information. Okay, but well, I was going to say, oftentimes in the media, we hear from the victim's family. We hear, we see a picture of, of, of the victim, not at the time of the incident or what was happening. We see a, a picture of them. Maybe it's a high school photograph or at a wedding or something. But we, we rarely hear from the officers involved. And I'm wondering, is that a frustration of yours or is that just the way it is? I'm sure that that, that weighs on police officers when they want to say something about what actually happened there. They want to want the public to know, but they're not supposed to open their mouth? Yeah, well, I mean, we do have processes in place where, um, you know, the officers can speak with, you know, professionals if they want to speak to somebody um, about the incident. Like I mentioned, we have critical incident stress management um, programs in place. Uh, The Vancouver Police Union provides services as well to assist our officers, as does our HR department. So we have a lot of different um, avenues for officers to talk about what happened, to debrief what happened. But as far as um, debriefing it in a public forum, I actually haven't heard from our officers a desire for them to actually speak publicly about what happened because they're they're tragic situations, they're very private, they can be traumatizing, and um, I I actually haven't heard that as being an issue for officers, that they want to talk about it personally. So it doesn't bother them if if the incident is in the media and um, it's played over and over again, maybe for a solid week of news, and it keeps referring to officers. I may not name them, but uh, I'm just trying to put myself in a place of a police officer at home watching the 6 o'clock news, hearing about this incident over and over again mm-hmm. and not being able to say anything. Right. So I'm not saying that uh, for a minute that the media coverage uh, is not frustrating or uh, sometimes doesn't have all the facts and can weigh on somebody and be difficult to hear because for sure that's another stressor that can come from these incidents that they're put into these challenging circumstances, which is what their job is. That's what they're paid to do. And that's mm-hmm. what they're trained to do and very well equipped to do. And we're putting them in these situations that nobody else in society does. And then when it goes, you know, into a situation where somebody is injured or sometimes a life is lost, then the the media and other people, um, you know, as I said before, the armchair quarterbacks will come in and start talking about, you know, what they think happened without knowing all the information, um, again, from a misinformed perspective, and start pontificating about what they think was the right thing to do or not. But they weren't in those circumstances. So that can be frustrating for officers. That's why I think it's important for whether it's the police union or myself as the chief or other senior officers to put some context around these things that they're not always the way that they appear, um, the way that they're portrayed in the media. Okay. Well, speaking of officers, I know uh, we're, we're pretty much neighbors here in this neighborhood in Mount mm-hmm. Pleasant. Now, I know you have a police department on Camby Street. You have one out uh, first in Boundary. When is the VPD going to get its own police department where all officers are under one roof? Right. So, I mean, there's kind of a semantics thing there. We have our own police department, but... Right. <laughs> right. Uh, as far as co-located in one location, that, that is something that I'm looking at. That is something that um, is a concern for me because right now all of our operational officers, so all the frontline patrol officers in uniform, they work 
um, out of our Canby Street office. And all of our detectives and administrative people, for the most part, are working out of our office that you referred to at First and Boundary. Yeah. It does create some inefficiencies there. You know, that other office is really, you know, half a block in from Burnaby. So when they're doing follow-ups in Vancouver, it's a long way to travel. When we have meetings at one building or the other, it's a long way to go. There's also a a breakdown in communication when you have frontline officers that want to talk to follow-up investigators or detectives, and you don't know when somebody's working perhaps because you can't see if they're physically in the office. It's hard just to walk up and knock Mm -hmm. on their door. So Having people co-located in one place um, is a vision that I would like to fulfill during my tenure. Mm -hmm. So we are actually looking at different options around the city, um, how that might look, and trying to find a location where we could have one purpose-built facility all in one location with everybody under the same roof. Yeah, well, uh, there's a lot of talk about the Falls Creek Flats and the new hospital down there. I Mm -hmm. know for years there's been rumblings at City Hall that they need a new City Hall, so... I'd like to hear more uh, from people who can tell me more about uh, the vision for a new police department, a new city hall, and whether it is something you'd want to set up in the Falls Creek Flats. But that's for another time. Um, before I uh, let you go, I wanted to talk to you about uh, this new recruiting campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems that you're focused on recruiting more women. Why is that? Well, we're looking for the best people to become Vancouver police officers. But one thing we're always looking at is to make sure that our police department does reflect the community. Uh, We've done very well on the front of uh, recruiting women. We have over 25% of our police officers are female, which is very high for a major city in Canada. Um, We're also looking for all kinds of diversity, though, in policing. You know, back in the era when I got hired, uh, it was predominantly white males. But I know that has changed significantly over my career. And we've made a real... Um, effort to hire people from all different uh, diverse backgrounds, a lot more women. And we're heading in a really good direction. And we want to keep heading that way because people from, you know, different backgrounds and um, women, of course, of a different gender, they provide different perspectives um, on policing and on public safety. And we want to bring that uh, into our police department. So Mm -hmm. now's a great time if anybody wants to consider a career in policing we're still hiring all kinds of people. We're not just hiring women. We're hiring, you know, men and women from all different backgrounds. There's no special favoritism given to somebody because of any particular background. They have to meet all of our requirements, and the requirements are quite stringent. Mm-hmm. But they're fair requirements that you need to uh, to be a police officer. And you hire a lot of police officers uh, from other police departments as well. We do. We lose very few Vancouver police officers to other police departments, but we do have uh, many, many dozens of officers that are applying to become Vancouver police officers. I think we've got about probably 70 or so right now that uh, have applied that are currently um, on the radar for recruiting. That doesn't mean that we're going to hire all 70, but the advantage of um, hiring experienced police officers from other police departments is that they have a track record. We can look into their backgrounds and we can pick the best ones. So we do hire people from the RCMP, other municipal departments, uh, people from out of province that have uh, proven themselves to be excellent police officers in their home departments. Okay, last question. So what's going to be the VPD's focus for the rest of the year? I know property crime has always been a concern, but of course uh, we have the opioid overdose crisis. So what's, what's the focus for the rest of the year? Well, there's more than one thing. So you've mentioned a couple. Property crime is a concern. That's been on the rise since 2011. So we are concerned about that. Opioid crisis, of course, is another one. Mental health, both externally in the community with people we deal with, but also internally with our officers. 
We're also doing a large operational review right now where we're looking at um, what the proper staffing levels of the VPD needs to be. So we have um, our analytical people, which we have very good analytical capability within the VPD. And we've also hired outside consultants that are working with us to do a review of frontline operations, but also our detectives and our support personnel, both sworn and civilian, to see what uh, what strength we need to be at. Because over the years, um, the population in Vancouver has steadily increased. The calls for service are going up. Crime is going up on the property crime side. Response times to calls, it's taking us longer to get there. And officers are having less proactive time. And that always concerns me because I don't want to be a reactive police force where we're just waiting for a call to come in and then we respond. Um, We're much more effective when we have the resources to be proactive and get ahead of incidents before they happen. And for Vancouver to be a thriving city, it has to be a safe city. And policing plays a significant role in that. And Vancouver is a safe city? It absolutely is a safe city and we want to keep it that way. Okay. Well, we'll leave it right there. So again, Chief, thanks for coming in today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chief Palmer. I always appreciate the feedback on the topics we discuss on the podcast. You can reach me several ways. You can email me at mhowell at vancourier.com. That's M-H-O-W-E-L-L at vancourier.com. I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Howlings. That's H-O-W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S. And you can find me on Facebook. Again, thanks for listening. And I will be back with another guest very soon. Until then, have a great day and listen to podcasts. I hear they're good for the brain. 